Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Under Pressure, with a message titled, Final Words About Suffering and Persecution. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, suffering is difficult. It's never easy. Sometimes when I hear some Christians talk about, you know, the suffering church, they almost speak about it in glowing terms. And occasionally, at least in the West, I will hear some Christians say, well, you know, what the church needs today is persecution. That will purify us and lead us to revival. Well, I think what Westerners often miss is the painful nature of persecution and of the suffering church. Sometimes when believers suffer for the faith, some become intimidated. Others begin to question God. I mean, why would he allow this? Still others wonder how it's possible that the enemies of Christian faith would have such power over the church. I mean, God's protecting the church, some say, and therefore such suffering, well, how can that happen? You know, sometimes I've heard people in the West speak this way, and they say, well, before the church in the West suffers, God will rapture the church. Now, it is true that in the West we have been protected, you know, for many years now by bills of rights and freedoms as well as laws respecting the free exercise of religion. And there are great many believers in other countries that have sometimes, you know, had those laws, but they're constantly violated, as well as places where their rights are very few. And I raise this because verse 19 begins with the words that the beloved fellow believers loved by God shouldn't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. And for us who read this, the first, I think, most obvious question is this. Is this a universal principle that is eventually all Christians will face fiery trials, or is this a selective principle? That is, it could happen to you, and if it does, you shouldn't be surprised. Now, we might read 1 Peter and conclude from some passages that persecution is only a possibility. You know, chapter 1, verse 6 does say, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Well, that seems to give the impression that it, well, it might not have been necessary in other situations. And chapter 3, verse 14 says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. And again, you're left with the impression that the word if leaves open the possibility that it might happen, but also that it might not happen. And given that Peter was writing so many churches, I think it's likely that some were suffering a great deal more than others. And perhaps some hadn't even begun to experience persecution. And so it's clear that at some level, all Christians do suffer. But the degree of intensity will certainly vary from very mild to very harsh. And given Peter uses the phrase fiery trial or fiery ordeal, what does he have in mind? 
See, there are some Bible teachers who think that the reference to a fiery trial should be seen in terms of a refining fire. They think that Peter's reference to this takes us back to 1 Peter 1.7, where Peter speaks of the Christian community that is grieved by various trials so that, he says, you know, their faith might be tested by fire and found to be pure and result in praise to God. Well, that indeed seems to be what Peter is saying in chapter 4, verse 12. But even if that interpretation is right, we should still think of the phrase fiery trial in terms of intensity or a painful ordeal that some Christians were undergoing. Peter says, don't be surprised when it happens. It's not as if something strange were happening. And so let's think about that. You know, for a great many people, peace and tranquility, for them, that's the norm. That is, you know, I've scarcely ever heard a Christian say, you know, we're going through peace and tranquility right now, and it feels like something strange is happening to us. See, what I'm saying is that, you know, peace and tranquility for many, that is their expectation. But Peter seems to turn that around. Hostility from some is not strange at all. It's to be expected. Now think about that. Think about what's normal in our world. Misfortune, that's not abnormal. Disease is not abnormal. War is not abnormal, neither is crime. If crime were abnormal, every society in the world wouldn't invest so much money in police force as they do. And death is not abnormal. It's universal, not abnormal. So simply living in a fallen creation, it's normal for all people to suffer. We're not living in Eden. And then added to that is the fact that in the next and last chapter, Peter will speak about the devil like a roaring lion seeking to devour and given. You know, Satan hates the gospel, hates Jesus, hates his church. None of us should say it's shocking that the church should suffer. For those of us who have a biblical worldview, we're going to say this is what we were expecting that we could suffer. And furthermore, reading the book of Acts and the story of the birth of a church, both in the Jewish and Gentile world, we read of hostile opposition everywhere. Then no, says Peter, something abnormal is not happening. And given that reality, no one should be surprised when it occurs. And so given that reality, how should a Christian respond? Well, Peter gives three responses, and here's the first. Rejoice. We find that in verses 13 to 16. The second response is found in verses 17 and 18 is that we need to see the suffering that we're undergoing as a part of God's disciplining and chastening hand, caring for the well-being of his church. And then there's the third response that's in verse 19, and it's that suffering and persecution afford believers with an opportunity, an opportunity that they wouldn't have if they were not undergoing such a painful trial. So let's start with the first point. When persecution comes upon the church, the church of Jesus needs to rejoice. Now, please don't misunderstand this point. You know, when Peter begins verse 13 with the words, but rejoice, he's not assuming that Christians are masochists. We're not. We don't like suffering any more than others do. We don't rub our hands in glee at the prospect of being excluded or being maligned or suffering financial pain or even suffering physical harm or imprisonment and even death. None of those things are relished by us. However, and this is Peter's grand point, Christ our Lord has suffered for us, and whenever Christians suffer, we are sharing in Christ's sufferings. Now, you want to think about that and consider the testimony of Scripture. Acts chapter 5, Peter and John, they've been charged never to speak in the name of Jesus any longer, and then, to help them understand the point, they are beaten. 
Verse 41 says they left the council that day rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name. It's a great privilege to suffer dishonor and so express our solidarity with Jesus. Or listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.24. Now we rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So we might wonder how how anything could be lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, you know, in one sense, nothing's lacking. I mean, after all, Jesus' death on the cross is complete. Nothing needs to be added. But on the other hand, if the gospel is to go out into the world and reach men and women for Christ, something is lacking. And what's lacking is men and women who are required to pay the price necessary to bring the gospel to the world. Now, think about this principle in terms of the people that Peter is speaking to. See, some of them had already faced a fiery trial, and they hadn't packed it in. They hadn't run away. They they hadn't given up on their faith, and they hadn't complained and said, Oh, God, how can you let this happen? Instead, they remained steadfast. They stayed put. Peter is saying to them, Rejoice! Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, even though it meant suffering and death, and you, too, are submitting to the will of God. And in that sense, you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. But then Peter adds that you're also going to be glad and rejoice when his glory is revealed. That is, when Christ returns for his own, think then of the joy you're going to have. His glory will be revealed, and this will lead to an outburst of joy. Live, says Peter, in that anticipation. Go to verse 14, where Peter will give a specific example of suffering. Notice he could have spoken of imprisonment and death, But he chooses to speak of something that, you know, we might consider far more benign. He speaks of being insulted. If you're insulted, he says. The verb that Peter uses suggests that it's a common activity and it continues. It goes on. See, if you're continually reproached, says Peter. See, the sense is this is what believers are living with. The insults don't happen once. It's a part of their experience. If that happens, says Peter, you're blessed. Now, back in verse 13, Peter has spoken of the day when Jesus' glory is revealed. That was in the future. But here he speaks of being blessed in the present. I mean, who's blessed when they're insulted? I mean, how how is that even possible? In Jesus' parable of the sower, it's the soil that enhances the harvest. Hardened ground must be broken up earth riddled with stones or weeds has to be sifted. When the soil is prepared, the seed bursts into life. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the sowing of God's Word. And you can stand with us in this commitment. Your regular financial gifts make this broadcast possible. Your kindness propels the Word of God across Canada. Your prayers help prepare the soil and your donations help plant the truth. This month, because of the generosity of a group of dedicated listeners, we've been privileged to extend our match campaign with an additional $75,000. So, double your impact, dollar for dollar, during the month of July. To do so, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Peter's been making the case that when believers suffer, it doesn't result in bitterness, rather it results in joy. Indeed, in verse 14, we've seen that if you're insulted and continually so, it results in blessing. I think that Peter is communicating to us 
is not that suffering builds character, although he does say that in Second Peter, also in First Peter, but here he seems to indicate that suffering results in joy because God's presence is in the midst of our suffering. That is, when a believer suffers, you know, they mustn't think that this is a sign that God's abandoned them. Rather, they've got to remember that the Spirit of God rests on them all the way through. See, notice verse 14. Peter calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of glory. You know, Peter's speaking about an Old Testament concept. It's the Shekinah glory of God. You might think of the wilderness wanderings during the time of Moses. A cloud would come and rest upon the camp, and the cloud would be an indication that the holy God was among them. And Peter's saying, look, when you suffer today, are you aware that the dwelling of the Holy Spirit is among you? And he's giving you evidence that the God of glory will never leave you. And as you suffer, rejoice. God's giving you evidence by the Holy Spirit that he's not abandoned you and he won't abandon you in the future. Verses 15 and 16. Let's reread them now so we don't forget. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See, I want you to imagine the shame that overtakes someone when they're caught breaking the law. I mean, you know, their deeds are exposed, let's say, in a court of law, and then they're sentenced to a time in prison. Imagine what their law-abiding friends might think and say. Imagine, you know, their spouse, their children, their parents. What do they think now? In short, the suffering the convicted person undergoes is coupled with the idea of shame. How are they ever going to hold up their heads again in public? Now, contrast that scenario, says Peter, with the suffering of a Christian who's suffering because of their faithfulness to be a witness to Christ to the greater community. Perhaps, as we have seen in the past, believers refuse to pour out libations to the gods or even to the emperor. Perhaps they no longer participated in the kinds of, you know, drinking parties, orgies, idol worship. Perhaps they didn't show up at the trade guild meetings in the temple anymore and participate in pagan rituals there. And in consequence, they were suffering. But unlike our criminal in our example, the believer who suffers for his or her faith must lift their head up high and remember, look, this is a participation in Christ's sufferings. Hence, it's not about shame. It's about thankfulness and joy and feeling honored to be mentioned right alongside of the name of Jesus. Yeah, of course, the Christian suffering might be the same as the criminal suffering, but oh, how different they are as well. It's the difference between shame and joy. And so Peter, in this final paragraph regarding persecution and suffering of believers, gives the first response to unjust suffering. He says, rejoice. (laughs) And I must say, nothing so exhausts the enemies of the Christian faith than a response not of rage or frustration or uh, intimidation, but of joy. I mean, what can you do to a people that when you persecute them, they become ever more joyous? Well, Peter now moves from the response of joy to the second response to suffering, and that's in verses 17 and 18. He invites Christians to do their theological homework. What does the presence of suffering in the Christian community tell us about what God is up to? I think we all do well when regardless of what we experience, we always ask, what is God up to? I mean, we know that it's never enough to say, well, you know, I guess, you know, we live in a broken and fallen world and terrible things happen in a world like this. I mean, that kind of response, although in some senses is true, it's hopelessly inadequate. It's because that view by itself fails to take into account that the world isn't out of control. 
It's not a set of random events that's happening. See, the biblical worldview is that God is the king. He sovereignly controls all events for his glory. Indeed, God is not only sovereign, he's meticulously sovereign. See, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That is to say, that God controls all matters, even the throw of the dice, while you're playing a game with family members. God controls all things, both large and small. And so the question of persecution and suffering, when it's found among the church, always invites the church to ask the larger question of the purposes of God. See, I assume here that the church, like Jesus in the garden, prayed about that cup of suffering, that it might pass from them. But then they find that the cup didn't pass, and now they seek to gain insight into the mind of God. Look again at verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Ha ha, says Peter. You know, what does this suffering among us mean? Well, it means that the judgment of God has begun in the household of God. Now, that phrase, household of God, can also be translated just simply as house of God. And it borrows from an image that Peter used earlier in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. There, Peter spoke of living stones that make up the spiritual house of God. Christians are the temple of God. We're made up of bricks that live. Bricks that are the lives of the people who belong to Jesus. Well, very well. We are the church, and we are to be judged first, says Peter. And that's not a foreign thought. Peter is simply assuming a truism that believers in Jesus, along with the rest of humanity, will all be judged. Furthermore, some of the First Testament prophets, such as Ezekiel in chapter 9, says that when God judges, he begins with his own people. But this is key. Peter can't mean that God's punishing his people. He already has pointed out that the sufferings that they are undergoing is evidence that God counts his people worthy of being identified with Jesus. So whatever Peter means by judgment beginning in the house of God, well, that can't mean that God's punishing his church by bringing suffering on it. So what does Peter have in mind? Well, Peter means that God is using suffering to purify his people. Go back to chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. There, Peter says that the trials not only test the genuineness of faith, but suffering also purifies the faith. It burns away the dross. It helps believers gain perspective on what's ultimately important. The glory of God's important, the promises, the gift of eternal life, the reward that is yet to come. All of these things are of ultimate value, and God is judging his people in the sense that he's ensuring that the church is pure and puts its hope on the things that matter. Well, says Peter, if judgment begins with the house of God, what do you think judgment's going to mean for those who rebel against the purposes of God? How's judgment going to work out for them? You see, Peter has been speaking about the importance of reacting with joy to suffering alongside of gaining an insight into God's purifying purposes as Christians go through extremely difficult times. Now then, let's go to our last reaction to suffering. It's found in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter's been speaking about the response of joy, the response of gaining insight into the ways of God. Now he speaks of trust. Entrust your soul to your faithful creator. See, he assumes that the church is going to understand that it's a great deal easier to entrust our souls to God when, number one, 
We know that God is faithful, and he always makes good on the promises he's made to us. And secondly, we can entrust our souls to God when we know that his intentions towards us are loving. Of course, in this matter, we need to consider Jesus' attitude while he was suffering. Go back to 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but, watch this, continue to entrust himself to him who judges justly. See, don't you see, says Peter, when you, while you're suffering, entrust your soul to God, you're doing exactly what Jesus did when he suffered. It means that you don't thrash about and ask God, how can you let this happen? Rather, it means your soul becomes quiet and patient, knowing that God has a perfect plan for your life and your eternity. I love what one author wrote about this passage. He said, neither human society nor human governments can pass the final judgment on Christians. And so in the long run, those judgments are irrelevant. I think verse 19 is great counsel to all Christians, whether we suffer persecution or any other form of suffering. In fact, it's great counsel regardless of what we're going through. Whatever your circumstances, keep on trusting God. Keep recognizing that in his infinite wisdom, he has the perfect plan for you. Don't fear, don't become agitated, don't despair. Entrust your soul to God. And armed with those three attitudes, thankfulness, theological reflection, and entrusting our souls to God, these things, when they're practiced for a lifetime, will take the Christian through every possible difficulty they will encounter. And it will be well with you. Thanks so much, John. John, what is it about our journey in Christ that actually makes suffering necessary? Yeah, I'm glad you used that word necessary, Ben, because it is necessary, and the Bible gives us a number of reasons, and we find it in 1 Peter. I mean, one is we have been called to identify with Jesus in his sufferings, in his death, so that we might also identify with him in his resurrection. I think suffering does a number of other things as well. It makes the world around us less attractive, and it makes the promises of Christ more attractive. And then I think there's a very practical reason why we suffer, and that's because the values that we hold, the values of the kingdom, those values will always be at odds with the wider culture, which is being influenced by satanic values. So uh, we we do know that we are in a a collision course, uh, yet we can be gracious and gentle in those things. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada has just wrapped up another fiscal year, and we're beyond grateful for all your gifts toward our year-end target. Your generous donations have helped position this ministry for another successful year of sharing the gospel in every way imaginable. We're so excited for everything we have in store for this next year, so stay tuned. Our match campaign in June was a huge success, but we're humbled to say the amount of the pledges we received for the match campaign exceeded our expectations. Therefore, we're able to extend the campaign into July with an additional $75,000. So dollar for dollar, your gift will be matched up to an additional $75,000 in the month of July. We're so grateful for your gracious support right across Canada. So to double your impact, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.